0: Hello students, and welcome back to the Lore of the Iron Kings with me, Professor Caster. Today, as we mentioned last week, I've been Hiatus with the Old Witch of Kodor, and we are going to be discussing the Grimkin this week, the creepy guys from the Urkane that have seemed to chase all these sinners all around. But before we begin, thank you again for, uh, for liking, subscribing, and the like, and thank you again, Privateer Press, for letting us read your fantastic lore, but... Without further ado, let's begin the history of the Grimkin on the way to before they became Grimkin to what happened after they decided to pick a fight with Mineth. And before we get into the archives, we actually have a little foreword of the archives. I'm not sure why they write these, but of course I do appreciate they do. Uh, Written by Will Schick. The mysterious beings known as the Grimkin have long stalked the fringes of civilization, their gruesome deeds immortalized in folktale and superstition passed down from one generation to the next as a warning against a sinful life. While scholars may dismiss such tales as flights of rural fancy, the truth is that the threat of Grimkin is very real, especially to those who live outside the stone walls of the great cities. The supernatural Grimkin comprise of a diverse assortment of creatures, each with their own particular prey for which they hunger. From the vile trapperkin that snatch children from their beds, to the moldering gourds of the Dreadrots, to the volatile cask imps that are the bane of all drunkards. Each Grimkin has its own ritualistic habits that define its nature such as much as its physical form. While in the dark past, the various Grimkin have posed a threat to those unfortunate few who might have randomly crossed their paths, the arrival of the Defiers from Urkane have brought the Grimkin together like a clarion call. Together, the fantastic and powerful creatures born from the nightmare of the Defiers' minds as they were tormented and twisted in the hellish landscape of Urkane, the Grimkin are now poised to unleash the wicked harvest upon all humankind leading their armies of grimkin the defiers are like demigods capable of untold feats of power and they thirst to destroy all that bears the stain of the god meneth these potent beings were once mortals who spurned meneth and his gifts rebelling against his oppression and the inevitable corruption they foresaw his civilization spawning for this they were cast in the hells of the Urkane, doomed to an eternity of pain and torment in time however the defiers learned to harness their curse And now they have returned, ready to tear down Mina's walls and rip out the black seed of his corruption from the heart of humanity. Within these pages of this tomb are scrawled the disturbing truths and hidden histories of the Grimkin and their masters. Should he be brave enough or foolish enough to expose your mind to these long hidden records, consider yourself forewarned, for all that have come to take for granted will be shaken to the very foundation. You will learn why it is wise to fear the dark and why no wall will save civilization from its ultimate fate. Just in reading these words, you can feel the change within you. The roots of corruption that have overgrown your soul are being cleared away by the burning light of truth. Wait, do you hear that? That is them scratching at the very walls of the world. The harvest is coming and coming now. Soon your eyes will be open to the lies of Minoth and you will see the stain his false gifts left left upon the world of meek and corrupt cowards. Stride forth from the shadows, bring your sickle and claim your bounty. Become a harbinger for the wicked harvest and let humankind reap what it has sown. Well, that was mildly disturbing. I'm curious if people that write for the Grimkin or write the archives of the Grimkin are a little bit um, off, if you will, but... The Grimkin are an unknown being of arcane origin, so I feel like you wouldn't be able to talk about something that's not as physical as Cain without being just a little bit off your rocker as well. But let's go and begin it with the very real fairy tale that is the Grimkin, and let the corruption of your minds begin. And as all good fairy tales begin, once upon a time, the maker of man, the hunter of the worm, that gigantic masked god meaneth. Stalked Cain, and the shadows that his looming shape threw on its still-forming world, and after the passage of his burning footsteps, the first mewling men and women crawled forth from the foaming waters to seek shelter in lands that were new and untamed. Humanity watched as the towering creator abandoned them to the hungry and thorny world, chasing its ultimate prey. He did not hear as they called out to him and prayed for guidance. He simply left them behind. Perhaps Mineth did not want to hear them, because he wished only to hunt the great beast that prowled in the tangled forest and flashed across the rocky peaks of the New World, the Devourer Worm. It was that ever-changing beast that gave the wolf its fangs and the lion its claws. The beast of all shapes and the creator of man waged a never-ending war with one another, unable to overcome the strength of their opponent, consumed by the desire to win the unwinnable war. Mineth had no time for trifling concerns like humankind. So the wild folk learned to live without their maker, hiding in caves and cutting their own path through the snarled realm in which they had been left alone. They gathered into families and clans, and those clans grew into tribes. In time, they were spread all over the land, living, hunting, and striving together against the unforgiving world. Humanity was free-thinking then, and uninhibited, Each and every one among them was able to hunt and love and die on his or her own terms. They wandered where they pleased, keeping only the possessions they truly needed to survive, having no interest in amassing great piles of useless things. These first people lived within the pulse and thrum of the primal world. Each and every day was a new opportunity to explore and experience Cain. They learned their strengths and tested their cunning all lived according to their own desires and deeds. They told stories by moonlight, sang songs in the blackest steps of the night. Their spirits became strong because they had survived, wise because they had learned from one another, and fierce because the weakness was purged out of them by the uncompromising world. What they seized from the world they savored, and their songs rang out beneath the moons and stars. When they died, their souls left their flesh behind to be untethered and free. After a time, the glint of these released spirits and the raw vitality of the wild folk living on Cain drew the eye of the Maker away from his hunt. When he witnessed what his creation had become, the masked god began to crave the pure essence lying deep within their marrow. Meeneth hungered for their souls. Meeneth knew that he could not simply reach out and claim them, for all of humanity had a buried strength that could rattle the oldest oaks and grind mountains down to powder. If these free people discovered that power, they might unite against him, or they might reject him in favor of other gods, such as the distant maiden who danced across the stars. They might even kindle their own power and become gods of their own making. Already many of the mortals had turned to the worship of Minut's foremost enemy, the great beast. He saw this jealously. As the hunter praised not his name, but that of the devourer worm, the hungry serpent that would not hesitate to claim their spirits when they passed from the world of the living to the land of the dead. Worst of all, beyond even these worlds, a greater darkness greedily awaited. And like ravenous spiders that hide between walls, the dwellers of this outer darkness were eager to add human souls to their collection. Ooh, starting off with a bang of heresy against Meneth. I imagine Minnites would probably like to burn all these books if they had access to it, but thank goodness Caspia's libraries are very well protected against Minnites' enjoyment of burning everything that would go against their teachings. Chapter 1, Humanity Enslaved. Fearing the loss of his creation's souls, Minnith devised a cunning plan to convince humankind to willingly become his servants. In ur the land of spirits, he built a vast and breathtakingly beautiful city. All souls who could reach its gates would be welcomed inside and inhabit its streets and structures, and there would become an army beyond any conceived by the mortal minds. It was a city built to expand to accommodate all who could and would arrive across the vastness of time. Soon it was a sprawling, larger than a continent, bordered by high walls of alabaster stone, clad in bronze and shining gold. This city would become home to all souls Meneth could lure to him. Some came to him unbidden, drawn to their creator by some inner need for his cruel neglect, but not enough to sate his appetites, not enough to guard the monumental walls and perform the necessary labors of his city not enough to serve as soldiers and slaves in the endless wars against his adversaries. His greed and gluttony were boundless, and so he derived four clever gifts to draw his abandoned children back to him. The flame, the wall, the sheaf, and the law, to them without a price or better would be simply help them to discover these gifts on their own. The maker devised these gifts so that the wild folk would worship him and abandon their uninhibited and primitive ways. He sought to instill in them a fear of the land and its beast, a fear that would stay with them even beyond their death. Then when they died and their souls passed to the Urcain, all those who claimed the gifts would be trapped in his city and become his eternal warriors. Their power would be chained to his purpose forever. Perhaps the masked god thought these gifts as a true blessing. He himself had never been comfortable with the unsettled places. Even the wind and rain angered him. It may be that when he looked upon his forgotten children, he wanted to make amends for abandoning them for so long. But a god looks with a god's eyes, not a mortal's. And the Maker did not see how receiving his gifts could be poison to their spirits, how it would chain them to one another and rob them of the freedom that made them clever and strong. In time, humankind would hold dominion over one another that would desire more power still. Each bit of it, they claimed, would stain their hearts. Until it had been a beating, hot-blooded muscle became a dark and charred chunk of coal. minoth offered his poisoned gifts, and many claimed them. His priest-kings were the first to taste the poison, and they joyfully distributed it to all that would hear their honeyed words. The first gift of Meneth offered to his children was the flame, and many said, Feel! Now the cold winds will not bite you when you lie down to sleep, and the light will drive back the shadows, for in the shadows we see so many hungry things eager to taste our blood. And they took the gift and built fires to chase away the shadows of their imaginations. They constructed hearths to stack stones and cut down trees to feed the flickering flames. They stopped wondering... For who would want to stray far from the light, the warmth, and the comfort of the hearth? Those who took the flame soon forgot how to see the stars and moonlight, deepening their fear of the night. Next, Meneth gave them the wall, and they said, Look, behind our walls we are safe from the wolves of the nighttime, and safe from our neighbors in the day. For who could breach a wall built of such stout and sturdy stones? And so they who accepted the gift labored to build more walls, carving the land into pieces, and they fought to keep one another outside the walls they called their own. Any who crossed the walls they named a trespasser and spy, and they killed such intruders for refusing to abide by the web of walls that Mineth had trapped them in. And then Mineth gave them the sheath and said, Taste, now our stomachs will no longer ache from hunger when we are clumsy hunters and our prey eludes us. And so some of the people plowed vast fields and sowed grain, which they ate until they were fat and lazy, learning to prefer even mealy bread to the flesh of beasts hunted, honest, and freshly killed. Those who toiled in the field became reliant on those who bore spears to protect them, and so they became servants to the Lord with the most spears. The grain they harvested was taken from them, and thus were links added to the chain of slavery." Last, Meeneth gave them the gift of law to his people, and they said, Listen, now we are no longer need to wonder if we are good or if we are evil, if we are wrong or if we are right. Because Meneth has given us the law, we must only obey. Some among them learned the law and surrendering the need and the right to think for themselves. They came to see how much better they were than the others how only cruel punishment could hope to bring the wicked back to the path of the righteous. Some cemented their authority over the rest, gaining the power to decide who would live behind which walls, who would be warmed by the fire, and who would feast well on the sheaf. And those by law would be made kings and queens over all others. And those who held the highest regard were the priests who spoke praises to meaneth who took credit for the bounty given to them, the unchained and unbowed. Thus civilization was born, and soon in turn gave birth to Itcher. Sinat, founder of this city, was the truth and the first and greatest of Minut's lickspittles. The priest who did more than any other to further spread Minut's poison, all in Itcher, would bow before him, surrendering their freedom, their thought, and their very soul. But not all, who were offered the gifts, were so eager to hand over their freedoms. A few saw through Minot's promises. They knew that he had offered was poison. Decrying his gifts, they said, Keep your flame, your wall, your sheaf, and your law. You would enslave us in life and in the next, and you would steal our freedom and force us into your cities to serve you. Look how it destroys those with- within it. They are senseless and fat, greedy and lazy. The only gift you offer is for us to rot of corruption. And so these few brave, free men and women spurned the gifts of their creator. The first to rebel was the child. Minas' law placed the parents above their child, and they were expected to devise and enforce petty rules about what was acceptable and what was forbidden, and what would be done and what shouldn't. The child hated these laws because they prevented her from doing what she wanted for no good reason at all. The child chose to be defiant and would not obey. Her soul gleamed with the wild power of untamable innocence and the rage of youth. Her angry screams deafened any who would tell her what to do, so much they couldn't even hear their own thoughts. No wall or dictate could contain her. Never would she accept the slaver's chain. There also came the wanderer, the walls the people built were made to keep others from wandering, to keep them out of certain places. A road served as a different sort of limitation, dictating a set and finite path chosen by whoever laid its stones. The wanderer did not accept such, such constraints on his freedom. An individual should be at liberty to walk wherever he pleases. So the wanderer moved with no regard to these barriers, whether erected by mortals or gods. He discovered he could blaze new and impossible paths that no other man could fathom, and when he dared follow them, he could journey to places beyond imagining, even into otherwise intangible stuff of dreams. As Mina's laws sapped others of their power of imagination, one woman rejected the laws he wrote defining what is and what isn't. The dreamer wanted nothing to do with the reality of Minath had created. She refused to accept it. Instead, she dreamed up wholly new realities to reside in, realities so vivid and vibrant that the world around her began to take a new and fanciful life in its envy of that she could imagine. All but last was a man who rejected not only Mineth's gifts and society that came with them, but all people and everything in the world as well. He hated Mineth for his creation, hated humanity even more, and hated the way Minas' laws drew people together and encouraged them to mind one another's business. He wanted nothing more to be left alone by all, to live as a hermit. His spite and enmity were so absolute that the very bodies of those who came too close to him began to wither and ache. Animals and plants would shrivel and die if they lingered in his presence. His desire for solitude became itself a force of nature, dividing him from all else. In time he sat alone on the barren plot of earth as a spiteful despot of his own empty realm, a self-satisfied king of nothing. The defiance shown by these rebellious ones enraged Minoth. It was not just their rejection that galled him, but also how, in turning their backs to their creator so irrevocably, that they discovered the greater power residing within their own individual souls... If others also discovered this, the god would be undone. His plan had been so clever, his gifts devised so cunningly. But these petulant humans had tossed them aside without a thought, meaning desired to tool and drag these disobedient creations back to his worship. Failing that, he intended to end their lives in a way so terrible that it would serve as a curse and warning to any others with a temerity to refuse him. And so Minoth kindled a power within the most devout of those who had accepted his gifts and abided his laws, and they were elevated to priests and kings among humankind. They struck out across the world, emerging from their cities to put the torch to all the Creator's children who chose to act against him. The priest kings, and champions of Minoth led their armies and cleaved through the savages beyond the wall. Their name were uplifted as golden pillars of the civilized. After Sinat, arose Gullivant, Cardavic, Thrace, Belcour, and Geth. But there was one who came before even Sinat, one who was erased and stricken from all records. He was first. He was the highest and became the lowest. His name is gone, replaced with a word that t- transcribes the very essence, heretic. The heretic was a priest-king who blazed like the first light of dawn, beating back the shadows in Mina's name. He carved a bold path, along which were left countless hamlets that would one day grow into cities, and those cities would turn to grow into kingdoms. His light cast a long shadow that eclipsed even Sinat, whom he knew and instructed. Indeed, much of that is credited to Sinat, should be cast at the feet of the heretic instead. By Minoth himself, he was guided in erecting the grand city of Arsinia, and he soon expanded civilization to the northwest, Spreading the fires of Meneth, As his legend grew, however, the heretic saw the divine for what it truly was. Looking at his own self-supremacy and all that he commanded, he realized all mortals have within them a touch of divine power. He learned that it might had been bestowed upon him by Meneth, but rather that the god had simply kindled that which was already within. The heretic knew himself to be a singular and special, that he began to dream that beneath the mask worn by the Mineth was hidden a face identical to his own. But in the, this revelation, he also saw the world as flawed and ill-made. minoth's gifts were but a gilded cage meant to distract humanity from the truth that they were all enslaved in death. If he truly was the inheritor of power to rival Minoth's own, the heretic knew he must reshape the world into a new form and shatter the chains of bondage. Most of all, he saw that Minoth was not a just god. Minoth did not punish the wicked, those who wielded his gift like weapons against their neighbors, nor did he reward those who selflessly cared for others with no material benefit to themselves. Instead, the god rewarded only obedience and punished only defiance. The heretic was the first to have the scales of deception fall from his eyes, but he would not be the last. From that point forward, the heretic refused to wield his power in the god's name, bending it instead to his own purpose. He would not remain Minot's puppet, knowing himself to be the creator's equal, if not his superior. He harnessed his own divine might, and stroked the spark of godhood within him to a roaring flame. Chapter 2 Rebellions Against God Once we marched against the walls of Ictur, but Minas strode to battle impervious to our spears. He burned our flesh and spurned our souls, and banished us to hunt these stones. So linger now our spirits here. Ancient Minite Rhyme of Arcania Spitting in the eye of a god, the heretic's disobedient and defiant message spread like wildfire. Others throughout Arcania were drawn to him like moths to the flame, and in time the heretic sparked the fires of rebellion. Those who joined him were not merely the superstitious or cowardly, but true individuals who wanted to return their lives free of Mineth's demands and the gifts he thought to offer humanity. There were some who took this rebellion with sword and spears, following Heretic's blazing path as he rolled over many villages he himself had once nurtured. His army marched to the first city, Itcher, ready to tear down the oppressive edifice Mineth had made. Two of the Defiant Ones, the Child and the Wanderer, joined the heretic as he prepared to destroy Mineth's bastion. The others rebelled in their own way. The dreamer drew deeper in her chosen realities, spilling echoes of her dreams out into the world. The King of Nothing withdrew even further from all other living things, his aching need for solitude becoming so great that even others could feel it. Mineth could not stand for this rebellion. He could not abide one of his own to whom he had given such power and authority, rising up against him. So the creator summoned an unfathomable power and let loose his fiery wrath. The heretic's city he smote with an earthquake, rattling the stones of Arkenia and cursing the land to be poisoned forever after. The leaders of the heretic's armies were burned to ash, condemning their souls to wander helplessly through the rubble of their city The rest were bound in agonizing chains of burning brass, and forced them to watch their champions receive divine castigation. For the child, the wonder, and the dreamer, king of nothing, and the heretic, he reserved his cruelest punishment. One by one, he looked down on the defiers as they demonstrated their refusal of the gift of civilization he had bestowed upon humankind, and he proclaimed, "'Who are these who dare refuse me? Who is this who claims to be my equal?' I am the maker of man, I am the giver of the flame, the sheaf, the wall, and the law. For your insolence, you will face a world without mercy, a just reward for defiant children such as you. And as meanless smote the world, he cracked the barrier between Cain and Ur-Cain like a shell of an egg, opening an ever-widening fissure between the lands of the living and the dead. The defiers looked down into the howling abyss, into the endless churning wilds of Ur-Cain, where spirit beasts... Tore at each other with their spectral talons and teeth. By the power of the makers of man, the Defiers were cast down, still alive, into the hells of the Urcane, a place of spirit where no living thing had ever stepped. It was and is a world where the special gifts and extraordinary natures would avail them nothing, where the hungry spirit beast of the devourer worm would torment them with tooth and claw. The Defiers would not age, nor could they die for time did not flow as it does on Cain. Their tortured bodies would endure, suffering beyond comprehension across an eternal cycle with no ordered cycle of day or night to mark time's passage. But the heretic, the last of the defiers to plummet into the chasm, spat a proclamation at his creator as he fell, a prophecy set against the rotten fruits of Mineth's work, a curse from the accursed, bound together with the others by his disobedience and refusal of Mineth. He issued a prophecy and declaration against Minna's great work. Since this land was first turned for the bounty it would grow, stood fast one truth that our molder men should know. Choose ye wrong or choose ye right. Feed ye darkness or feed ye light. At the end of your days you shall reap what you sow. And with that the heretics' direful words and the five fires vowed to return to Cain someday. They knew the power of their own souls would eventually free them from their prisons. And when that time came to pass, they would rattle civilization and snuff out its corrupt black heart. They would punish all who accepted Mina's gifts to the detriment of others. They would reap a wicked harvest from humankind. Chapter 3 The Hells of the Urcane The world of the dead was not made for the living. When first the defiers arrived in the infinite expanse of the spirit world, They were tiny, vulnerable things, unable to defend themselves against the hungry, roaming spirits of that place. They tried to fight against the beast of the urkane, but even with the talents they had honed in life, they could not hold back the agonies of hell. When they tired, they could fight no more. The miracle of hunters of the spirit world would fall upon them. Even the defiers' own thoughts betrayed them. When they collapsed in exhaustion... From their endless running and hiding, they were overtaken by terrible nightmares. Given power by the essence of Arcane, their nightmares had solidity and will, birth whole and hungry from their minds. For unnumbered years, the Defiers had not a moment of peace. But though they were forgotten and abandoned to their fate, their inner resolution remained. Time and hell warped their bodies and the minds of the Defiers. Endlessly, they suffered at the claw, teeth, and blade of their tormentors and their fears were given life anew to chew at their flesh, and slowly took on new and strange bestial forms, torment with the defier's crucible, burning away any weakness or fear they may still have had, and replacing it with a toughened scar tissue. Their minds grew inured to the terror and agony, though the only defense of their mind exposed such things is to become uniquely mad. Each moment of suffering made them stronger, more able to withstand the coming tortures. Mortal ages passed on Cain, civilizations rose and fell, before they rose of, out of pain and fear and madness. Through this process of spiritual destruction and rebirth, the Defiers learned to further harness and shape their unique powers. They learned to control the spirit world around them, treating the landscape of hell as a canvas for their dreams to work upon. They learned to shackle even their own nightmares and force them to yield to the Defiers' incomparable will. Though they were together, they walked their own separate paths through the darkness. As their minds and spirits had been remade by the trials of hell, the Defirers discovered that their bodies, the true flesh their cloth- that clothed them, were subject to its own control. Spirit and flesh had become one. The pain the Defirers faced in Urkane could only be deadened, not eliminated entirely. But in time they learned to endure, even as they planned their eventual escape. They were no longer condemned to hell. As they embraced their diverse powers, they became hell's masters. I do suppose that spending enough time being tortured, you can only go one of two ways. You can either master the torture and get stronger, or you can let it drive you insane. And these guys probably did a little bit of both in their endless centuries or millennia of that. But Chapter 4, Birth of the Grimkin. Those who bore witness to the fire's acts of rebellion and those who watched as Azminath cast them into hell remembered those five ungovernable souls and shared stories of their disobedience. They retold the legends as cautionary tales to their children in the light of crackling logs or swinging whale oil lanterns the fire stories spread in quiet whispers and drunken rants. Across the bogs and fields of the world, the legends of the Defiers grew and changed over time, as tales of those foolishly stood like oaks against the burning wrath of a god. Grandmother's stories and father's warnings came down through generations like the white tendrils of a weed, taking firm root in the fertile soil of imagination. Generation after generation spun these tales, Weedling out fireside epics with the hushed words, always adding to the legend or embellishing it. Those that were told as warnings in many of these tales was a hint of admiration for those who rebelled, drawn from long-buried dreams of lost freedom. Away in their prison, the five heard these tiny echoes of tales that grew around them. They supped up those fables and mopped up each honeyed word with a crust of childish fear. Rejoicing in the sweet flavor it offered them in their tactless confinement. The Defiers seed those stories with greedy fingers, pulling in each new-spun tale and holding it tight, basking in the comforting warmth it spread in their aching meat and frozen bones. In turn, they passed their own stories back to those able to hear them. Through dreams brought on by fevers, the Defiers whispered clarity into the minds of the storyteller. To the unequit imagination of certain men, they showed visions of hell they inhabited. And so the stories from above helped shape and redefine their appetites and bodies. They fed their own stories back to the world of the living to magnify their legends. As years went by and stories grew and multiplied and changed, the defiers caught sight of others doing what they never could. Passing through the veil that separates the world from living to the world of the dead. They were the souls of the deceased who took a road barred to the Defiers on the way to their afterlife. Each pious soul hoped to arrive safely and meet its ever expanding city in Urkane, while others wandered lost and doomed in the trackless wilds, never to find their final reward. It was the wayward souls that drew the attention of the Defiers, especially the heretic. By the very nature these lost souls felt inexorably drawn to the defiers, their wandering paths not a directionless as they thought. Tales told of the defiers on Cain had paved unseen roads in their realm to hell, routes of least resistance opened by the fears and doubts of those who were wicked in life, and those whose fates were already linked by the legend of the five. "'Men and women who had committed sins against their fellows feared facing the defiers after death, "'and that fear forged an unbreakable chain, pulling them to their inevitable punishment. "'Urcain had never been kind to the impious, to the doubters, the lax, the selfishly cruel, and the lazily greedy. "'Such souls arrived in the afterlife far from the realms of the gods, "'and there became easy prey for monstrous creatures.' Forced to run from myriad hordes dwelling in the shifting expanse of Arcane's Hell. In their terror, they took what seemed the easiest path, down rocky hills, along cleared trails through the chattering woods, following the banks of icy rivers. All of these paths took them straight to the Defiers, who waited in them for the vast dreamscape they had carved for themselves. Each of these wayward souls was seized and scrutinized, laid bare by the heretic or another of the five who read the histories of their lives and transgressions engraved into their very being. Lives were peeled back year by year like the layers of an onion, revealing secret hopes, deep dwelling fears, and long bruised regrets and humiliations. Examining these souls, the defiers confirmed the truth, Of the conclusion that they had drawn at the outset of their rebellion. Mortals had been marred by the foul fruits that thrived in Meant's civilization. Drunkards, cowards, liars, cheats, the vain and the jealous. All twisted by their own shallow lives. The Defiers saw each soul was truly made of. And with the power they had seized, they saw fit to pass judgment on them. The Defiers acted as a fractured mirror of what spirits before them. Reflecting their iniquities, in those reflections the soul saw themselves as the wretched beings they were, having lived their lives at the expense of others. They had wielded the gifts of Meneth like weapons, using them purely to better their own selfish lives. In the plight of their victims, the defiers saw a reflection of their own unjust suffering at meenath's hands, and the righteous anger of the five helped to fuel their transformation. The essence of the wayward souls was reshaped to better match the sins within each. That which was dead cannot normally live again, but the powers of the defiers allowed the spirits a different form sort in the afterlife. One that would eventually permit the return to Cain, fueled by the defiers' judgment, the natural laws that preserved a soul coherence were overwritten and replaced. This gave these spirits new and grotesque bodies and minds, utterly removed from their past lives, hearkening to the old stories that cautioned against the very sin for which they had been judged, and guided by the defiers' mad dreams. These souls took on wholly new forms. Each was bound up in the same old story or legend, a folktale, a child's rhyme. These became the Grimkin. The defiers discovered the Grimkin, were not as firmly bound to ur as either the defiers themselves or the ordinary spirits of the dead. Each time a new soul crossed from the land of the living into the realm of the dead, its passage left a temporary pinprick in the barrier between these worlds. These small gateways soon closed of their own accord and were too small to allow the passage of anything in return, especially the powerful defiers. In this, their own magnificent betrayed them. Yet Grimkin, with their peculiar and chimeral forms, could slip through the smallest pinprick with ease. Each time a dead spirit passes, there is a small chance a Grimkin will leap back into the world of living, balancing the scales. The defiers instructed the growing throng of Grimkin to lie in wait of these small doors to open and return to Cain at every opportunity. Sometimes many souls tumbled through at once, such as at the height of a great battle where death was thick, and a throng of Grimkin could rush back through the other way. The heretic studied these passages with a scholar's eye. Night, when the moons were dark and the stars aligned in certain ways, led more powerful Grimkin through, as did the deaths of innocent men and women who fell victim to mean its cruel justice. More failed to cross than succeeded, but each... Who was made it through a small victory a way for the defiers to change kane however indirectly and pave the way for a greater reckoning to come grimkin used the wars of humanity to their own advantage slipping through unnoticed like a bill's rat stowing away through the hold of a great ship and so over the long years of the defiers imprisonment numerous grimkin crossed over from urkane Each was filled with a desire to bring mischief and danger to the world of the living, to invoke fear and nightmares, to punish the wicked. They felt compelled by their very natures to seek those whose souls had been marked by the same corruption that defined their own shaping. Each kind of Grimkin hungered for a certain flavor of sin, a specific variety of blemish and weakness. Sin called to sin. Murderers sought out murderers, and thieves sought out thieves. Some Grimkin even possessed the power to transform others to become like them, spreading their nature like an infection. The seemingly capricious ways of the Grimkin inspired more folktales. Those who happened to witness the Grimkins claiming their victims would share their tales, delighting in the madness and macabre, savoring the dark parables of morality and punishment. In time, the trial and error, rustic people learn some of the rules Grimkin must abide by. There are often peculiar vulnerabilities. These, too, were shared from father to son, from mother to daughter, down through the years. As cities rose and grew, pushing back the dark forests and hidden places where Grimkin lurked, the truth behind these sails were slowly forgotten. But hidden within the most nursery rhymes and bedtime stories were hints of truth about the Grimkin though not their origins or deeper purpose. The Grimkins sowed the seed of wicked harvest for centuries, seed the Defirers and their army nightmares would reap when the time was right. Chapter 5, The Old Witch The key that would unlock the defiers' eternal prison first began to take form long, long ago. In the earliest of days, far in the north in the barren land of ice and biting wind, something keen-eyed and razor-talon lurked in a cave. It watched as Mineth walked the world and saw the first people of the north as they emerged from nothingness. When it was hungry, it would seek out in the night and snatch one of them, dragging the corpse back to its cave where it would drink the blood and chew the bone. After a time, the thing in the cave began to appreciate the northern folk for more than the flavor of their blood and meat. It began to savor the strength of their spirits and relish the taste of their ambitions and dreams. It learned to appreciate the vintage of their fears. It saw the merits of influencing them. See, I told you the old witch was eating people. Absolutely. Because that thing was not an old lady. The thing is a monster. Well, I'm not going to say she's a monster because I don't want to be eaten. I imagine she still probably eats people sometimes. I don't know. Moving on. Gradually, this being took a new form, one which was more closely resembled humankind. Emerging from the shadows of the cave, It walked among the northerners as a stooped and wreathered crone, garbed in a cloak, stitched from the time-worn hides of countless kills. It had come to learn the tongue of the northerners from their screams and their whimpering pleas. It learned the name of the people whispered when they spoke of it, and it found the name pleasing, Zavina Aga. In time, she would come to know her simply as the old witch. She became a sort of steward of the Northmen bearing a strange affection for them, an unuttered link to their bloodlines. She saw how Meneth's gifts could be put to another use to make her favored northern tribes flourish. She encouraged them to build up their cities, though she cautioned them to always remain rooted in wild places. Almost alone of the beings of Cain, she walked in both places comfortably. The old witch had seen the defier stand against Meneth, and had listened to the heretic's pronouncement as they were thrown into the hells of arcane The unmistakably ring of prophecy prickled at her ears. The heretic's words were more than mere words. The oaths of the defiers swore that day was a pact that would be burned inevitably into their souls, fueled by their hatred for the corruption that spilled out of Minut's civilization wherever it grew. This act caught the attention of the old witch. But she is ever cunning, always scheming, devising ways to turn the fate of the world to her own ends, and so she stowed away the memory in her vast library of thoughts and dreams and left it there until the need for it arose in the world. That need came with the creatures of the outer darkness, things neither of the physical world nor of ur but from the lightless places beyond them both. Greedy for the power of human souls, these beings of shadows have long probed their fingers into the lands of the living, offering promises and power in return for that which they covet the most. Long after minutes locked the Defiers away, a young woman called Thamar, who turned out to be not so different from the Defiers themselves, and her brother Maro discovered the power to ascend as a god. When the Orgoth came and put people of her lands to the whip and chain, Thamar asked, by her brother, to make a pact with the sinister oathmaker dwelling in the dark beyond and empower her people with sorcerer's gifts. The bargain she offered these entities demanded a payment that Thaymar knew could never be paid, one which she might threaten the very nature of the balance between Cain and ur Like the old witch of North, this self-made goddess knew the Defiers waited in hell. She knew that when they ultimately escaped, they would be the Ananthva to the degenerate humans the creatures of darkness needed in order to thrive. So with the Dark Masters from beyond eager to bargain with her, and unaware of the fate that waited them should the Defiers one day be freed, the woman agreed to their terms. As decades and centuries spun forward, as the wheels of heaven turned in the sky, the dark masters did find people in the world who were as foul and greedy as they, and they made inroads into the world through shadowy packs with these men and women. Such wicked humans were living testaments of the warnings the Defiers had uttered proof that the flesh of the seemingly flawed fruit Mineth's gifts had wrought. While the weakness of humankind that Mineth introduced may have helped precipitate the Dark Masters finding open and vulnerable souls, the unfathomable threat stood clearly apart from Mineth. Even in Hell, the Defiers paid heed to the fragmented stories that reached their ears. They stirred, taking notes of events and living histories for the first time since their imprisonment, and they watched the influence of those bound to the darkness spread. In time, the number of those willing to pledge their souls to the Dark Master swelled. The greed in their hearts, fed by the luxuries their power granted them, grew until they were willing to swear it all away for more power, more wealth, more comfort in life. Hiding at the fringes of settled places, they worked in shadow toward their own ends but all while they gave their dark masters the opportunity to look upon the world of mortal men. With clear eyes, these inscrutable beings scouted the lands and prepared to claim the world and all human souls as their own. Zavina Aga foresaw the darkness that was coming and knew she alone could not stop it. As the number of these agents piercing the barriers between worlds grew, she knew she faced an apocalypse. The armies of humankind had grown vast, and they commanded weapons built of technology marred to magic. But even the greatest mechanica and the mightiest champions would be inadequate to face the horror shaped by the outer darkness. So too would the armies of the wild be in- insufficient. For too long they had torn at one another's throat. They had learned to wield might and magic and command terrifying beasts, but they were too easily distracted by old squabbles and schemes to hold the darkness back. Instead, the witch turned to the defiers. If she threw open the doors of their eternal cage, whatever they had become, whatever emerged in the physical world once more, would tear at the roots of the Iron Kingdoms find the corruption within. The murky borders between civilization and wild was common hiding place for the wicked men and women hiding in the shadows. If the defiers set loose their harvest, they were certain to claim the pheasants who were the greatest allies to the Dark Masters, had on Cain. As the Grimglin took their toll, they would provide a warning to others who might fall to similar corruption. But it would be a painful harvest, they claimed. The wicked would reap what they had sown as the Defiers punished them for their misdeeds. In unleashing them upon the world, Zavina Aga would be injecting poison into the sick body in the hope that it would kill the deadly parasites within before it killed the patient. And despite the work of the wicked harvest, there would be always corruption in the hearts of humans. There would always be an abundance of foolish mortals seeking power, but the defiers and their motley throng would slow the encroachment of the darkness in Cain and give her more time to prepare for its arrival. The old witch considered all this, weighing the benefits of having such potent allies to fight the darkness against the trouble and the chaos the defiers would bring with them. Finally, she made her choice and threw open the doors of her cane, but the witch was canny and always made sure to stack events in her own favor. So she carefully set aside individuals who would one day help her drive back the defiers and their children, should their menace prove to be greater than their aid to her and her designs. Chapter 6 The Wicked Harvest Begins Zuvina Aga scoured the world for clues about the Defiers to help her as she worked to set them free. She captured Grimklin and pulled them apart in her claws and discerned their maker's mark. She consorted with madmen who claimed that voices in the walls spoke to them unfathomable truths. She watched from the distance as witches danced and howled around blazing fires, holding crude totems of the wanderer and the child. She listened to the scattered prophecies of fortune tellers and sages, hearing within them divinations, occasionally seeds of truth. Everywhere she looked, she found scraps and hints left by the five. Piece by piece, the old witch pulled together her plan. With a host of minions, she held cajoled, bribed, and manipulated. She would build a great device to rip the warp and weft of realty. With it, she could open a tear between worlds. The most difficult pieces of the puzzle was to find the means to communicate with the Defiers, to find the hidden patch of ur they claimed as their kingdom. While she could force Grimkins to obey her will, the conspicuousness was so deeply rooted in their essence that they proved useless as messengers to reach their creators. She required a mortal conduit. The solution came in the form of a young noblewoman, driven mad by the loss and grief. Lady Cariana Rose, residing in an Institute for the Insane. Her breed of madness had drawn a flock of invisible Grimkin to her side. She treated the little things like her own children, who were now dead in the grave. The love she felt for her Grimkin was genuine, and they would do anything for her in return. Zavina Aga whispered in Lady Cariana's dreams, and hopes and fears spawned by the whispers affected her Grimkin companions, and were eventually perceived by the Defiers, especially the far-roaming mind of the Dreamer. At times, a death was required to allow Grimkins to return with a cryptic message to its greater masters, which seemed to the Old Witch a small price to pay. In this indirect way, these ancient and unknowable powers conspired through the sleeping babbles of an insane woman. The Old Witch had other conspirators to assist in the completion of her great machine, foremost among them was the founder of a secretive group dedicated to investigating the supernatural the device they built combined Zavina aga's cunning with the power of mortal ingenuity and its completion enabled her to crack open a gateway to hell through which the defiers could return to the world at long last when the time was right Zavina aga pierced a hole in the veil between worlds and out of the portal strode the defiers They emerged with a deep and primal hunger that reached down to their very souls, a burning need to fulfill the promise they had made so long ago to reap their due from the debased hearts of civilized men. The world was much changed since their banishment, but the corruption they foresaw resided in every corner of the land. The Defiers had much work to do, but they would not be alone. The moment the Five emerged from hell, every Grimkin in the world felt an irresistible tug. They abandoned their mischief, leaving cruel tricks half-finished and clever traps unsprung and journeyed to meet their masters. The wicked harvest had begun. And that, my students, is the history of the Grimkin all the way up until their release and into the mortal realms of Arcane. And if any of you guys have seen them, then that means that either you know somebody who's corrupt or you are corrupt yourself, and it's surprising that you're still alive if you're in my class. So... As always, thank you guys so much for sticking around. Thank you guys so much for listening. And please like, subscribe, let me know if you have any cool stories about Grimkin, or if you play Grimkin. Please feel free to post any pictures of your Grimkin armies or games against Grimkin, because Grimkin are cool, and I have also played a Grimkin army once or twice before. But also a shout-out, thank you Privateer Press for letting us read your fantastic lore. And please let your friends and fellow gamers know about this uh, YouTube channel slash podcast because it really does help the channel grow and helps me keep the steam train rolling as always and as always class dismissed